Happy New Year, everyone. Hopefully you had a good Christmas, good New Year's, good uh, however you celebrate the festive season, or even if you didn't celebrate, hopefully you've had a good December and January. We're back uh, somewhat in regular mode now, although the first episode we're back with isn't quite a traditional episode. It's recorded up at the uh, Stone and Wood Invitational, where I hosted a series of masterclasses on behalf of Stone and Wood. I took the opportunity to record the conversations that I had, uh, not all of them, just from the first session. So uh, I've put two together into two half-hour chats together into this podcast. The first one is the, we titled it The World of Wilds and Sours. Uh, it's star, starring, yeah, let's say starring, starring Richard Watkins from Ben Spoke, Brad Rogers from uh, Stone and Wood and Forest for the Trees, which is his new saison project. Uh, and then we've got Will Tatchell from Van Diemen Brewing. The next one, we are talking about native Australian flavours. That's with Craig Ullenstein from Stonewood Brewing and Eddie Brook from Brookies Gin. Uh, it's an incredible lineup of, of people to be chatting to and to be chatting about wilds and sours and native Australian ingredients. Um, you know, the first one, I think a lot of our listeners, a lot of you will probably be familiar with what we're covering, but the second one, I'm sure you'll, you'll learn something. Uh, really, really interesting stuff and... Yeah, really. Um, big big shout out to Stoner Wood for giving me the chance to I don't know, sit on sit on the panel with uh, f- these five amazing people. Uh, I also recorded another one called the Lager Revolution. That was with Jane Lewis from Two Birds, uh, Amanda Druvaskalns from Stoner Wood, and Dave McGill from Moobrew. I can't find it on my memory card, so I um, if I do find it, it's going to go up as a Patreon only special uh it was a good chat though so if you um if i do find it and you want to learn about lagers check out isle of time.com oh sorry patreon.com slash isle of time uh also some new content went up on the patreon site for for supporters if you haven't checked it out yet uh we'll be back oh, i should say there was an episode on christmas day of the homers where the bearers podcast released uh, with with Nick from Molly Rose, check that out if you haven't. It'll be one below this in the feed. Uh, we'll have more Molly Rose content coming this month, as well as a show with Dave and I. Uh, I think we'll just do be doing a bit of a catch up of the the world of beer and what we've been up to. And I think we're going to be drinking some mead. Uh, I got sent some some really interesting mead. Uh, it'll be a throwback to our, our mead blog that never really got off the ground, but. Uh, yeah, we've got some really interesting meads to talk about. So yeah, watch this space for all that stuff to come. And uh, yeah, enjoy the chat. Find us at aleofatime.com, at aleofatime. Uh, Dave, he's at, at Dave on, on socials as well. Thanks. Hi everyone, welcome to the Stonerwood Invitational. My name's Luke, it's really exciting to, to be here and be presenting these masterclasses on behalf of Stone and Wood, um, and it's great that they've put on such an amazing festival. I'm already just dying to wander around to drink beers, no doubt you guys are too. This first panel is probably some of the three of my favourite brewers in, in Australia. 
<laughs> I'm not just saying that because they're all bigger than me. They are, actually. <laughs> um, I, we've got half an hour, so I don't really want to go on too much. I just want to let them tell you guys about wild and sour beers. Uh, I'll introduce them all first. We've got Brad Rogers from Stone and Wood and Forest for the Trees, the new um, side project from... Uh, he's got a bottle there. Lovely Saison. I think that's pouring over at the bar, is it? It is pouring. Cool. All right, people are already doing it. Uh, we've got Richard Watkins from Bentspoke in Canberra. Richard, how's, how's it going? Yeah, going good. It's good to hear. Uh, and we've got Will Tatchell from Van Diemen. Will, how are you? Very well, thanks, Luke. It's good to hear. As I said, this is going to be about wild and sour beers, and it's a huge category. We've got so much ground to cover. So I'm just going to kind of throw it out. Uh, maybe we'll start with Brad. Uh, what, what do you consider a wild or a sour beer? What is it? Geez, I think for me, you know, wild and sour really harps back on days of yesterday when, you know, brewers didn't really understand much about yeast. You know, they got in, they tried to brew the best possible beer they can. They weren't going to the local shop and actually pulling some yeast off a shelf. They really just used the yeast that was either in the air or in the water, in the barns that, uh, that they were actually brewing their beer and fermenting and storing their beer in. You know, and I, I think that's a really nice, simple way of looking at beer and looking at what, you know, some of those sour, mixed-cultured beers. It's become a, a little bit more technical, you know, in this day and age where you can actually rock along to a shop and buy mixed cultures off shelves. We're lucky enough to have Dr. Frank in our little business, and Frank uh, is clever enough to actually isolate different uh, bacterias and different yeasts, and we're actually able to propagate these things up. So, you know, for me, uh, looking at what brewers used to do, you know, many, many years ago, and uh, using, you know, some of those real basic sort of brewing skills, but using today's technology and just bringing those two together and, and having some fun along the way. And that's really what uh, Forest for the Trees, you know, is all about. Oops, lofted. And that's really what this is all about, you know, just, just an avenue uh, to be able to explore, you know, different uh, ferments. You know, we, we play around with some sour beers and we play around with some barrels as well in good time. Um, how do you catch wild yeast? How do you do it? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's a very good question. Like catching fairies, really, isn't it? Yeah. But, uh, no, I mean, at the around. end of the day, there are so many wild bugs and bacteria and yeast in the air, in this room right now. They are everywhere. They might be in small proportions or very large proportions, and they really are everywhere, every day of the week. Richard? Tell us about your, your sour beers you've made over the years. Uh, I know you've done a few uh, using different methods. Can you tell us about some of your favourites? Yeah, look, I think um, as a brewer, I think it's the same for most, speak for most brewers, that making sour beers or making beers that you don't have complete control over is basically a fascination. It's, um, it, you know, every day you're, you're making beer that you can control and then when you're making sour beers, you're, you're really a, a little out of control and... Um, uh, so it's a, it's a practice that, that takes a bit, of, a bit of time. I think the best sour beers around are ones that have basically been loved over a long period of time. Um, it's not something you can really just whip up, you know, as quickly as you can a pale ale. Um, you need to spend a lot of time and effort monitoring, checking, um, and then, you know, um, processing, um, blending. Um, and it, it's a constant, a, a constant thing. Um, I guess... We, we all know the famous famous breweries around the world, but one of them one of them for us is um, Cantillon, obviously, and have been lucky enough to go there back in the early twos, um, and then coming back to Australia and not seeing a lot of um, people making sour beers. I guess I started thinking about making sour beers in the early twos, and it was funny enough. I think Brad was actually making um, 
a beer called Barking Duck at the same time. And I think in the same week I filled barrels, Brendan from Feral filled uh, barrels as well. So um, there's sort of, I guess in Australia, sour beer started yeah, back in sort of 2000, 2001. And um, over the years, you know, you get to know uh, what works really well and, and, and uh, how to keep that bacteria culture going. And one of the things we like to do is... Um, Basically, when you're ageing beer in barrels, you get a, a nice thick uh, layer of mould on top of the beer. Um, it's the best, easiest way to describe it. Um, called a pellicule. Um, and basically, we like to rack our beer out of those barrels, keeping that pellicule and then reusing it over you know, a few batches. So you keep that consistency. And I think some of the beers we've made over the years that are sour have, have gone through that process. Uh, well, you do a lot of blending, I believe. Can you tell us about the blending side of it? Um, just to touch on what Rich said, I think it's, uh, for me, sour beer is very much working with nature. So you're not trying, you're, you're not trying to control it, you're trying to uh, work with it uh, to the best of your processes. And, and, um, and as Rich said, it's sort of working with a, in the confines of that uh, without having full control over it. Um, the blending component, we started barrel ageing, barrel ageing uh, I don't know, probably eight years ago. Um, and what we've found for us, at least with the beers that we have in barrels, is that that blending component is almost the most critical um, component of, of uh, the final beer. So we can start with a brilliant beer going in and, and things, but each barrel will have its own individual personality. Um, unfortunately, that means that sometimes the best thing you can do with a barrel is dump it down the drain if it's, if it's not quite right. Um, and yeah, the, the blending component um, sort of makes or breaks a beer in reality. So. Um, you can start with the best beer in the world and, and make it even better um, by, by blending it over the course of time. And whether that be with six months, 12 months, two year, three year sort of blends or, or different bits and pieces and whether or not you've made additions to barrels. Um, yeah, that's sort of the, that's the fun bit for me is, is borrowing from the, the best parts of wine and whiskey without the wank. <laughs> um, the Writing words there yeah. from Will. <laughs> no, I'm not going to comment on that. Uh, does anyone have any questions at this point? Because we're probably talking a lot about technical things. Yo. So, like, you talk about plants in nature and things like that, sort of strange creative flavours. Is that luck initially, and then you try and propagate that myth, or is it one or the other? Uh, the question, if people didn't hear it, is, is it luck or science? Um, I can go. So, we have a, we have a range of beers called estate ales. Uh, where every one of the ingredients is harnessed from the farm brewery, um, which the brewery is based on, including the yeast. Now we went through, uh, we did a spontaneous capture about three and a half years ago. We went through about two years worth of isolation, selecting out uh, strains to the point where we got two clean strains out of that. Clean. Um, and we have, and the, there's a couple of the beers that'll be on tap today. Max and Edward are fully estate ales. Um, and there, we've done that from a um, basis that we wanted to create these beers that were reflective of modern styles, um, that they weren't necessarily that um, funky, weird, sour, um, really out there beers. Um, and when we did that spontaneous capture, I can guarantee we could go and do exactly the same process again now, go through all that isolation and get a completely different result. So to a degree, yes, it is dumb luck, the same way that we do our spontaneous beers into Cool Ship, we had to dump one the other day because after nine months in barrel, it just was not doing anything, so. One uh, question, does wild always mean sour? No, okay. well, for me anyway. That's, um, and again, that's where um, the Max and Edward that we have, that's where we wanted them to be reflective of modern styles. So especially as um, a lot of drinkers are, are immediately scared of, of sour and wild, we wanted something that 
um, was at least reflective of modern stylistic beers, um, but, but then we can start that conversation and an event like this is perfect, whereby, yes, it's, um, it's an indigenous yeast, but it is reflective of flavours and profiles that, that you'd normally associate with beer. Uh, any other questions out there? Anything? Why is there a bottle top on that wine, Brad? That is a fantastic question, young man. <laughs> if my mum was here, she'd say to keep me away from drinking it. But, uh, yep, you're 100% right. We've uh, put this beer into a 750ml champagne bottle, uh, and we've put a champagne crown uh, on the top there as well. Uh, instead of just using a normal everyday bottle, uh, we wanted to actually blur the lines a little between beer and wine, and we purposely put this beer in a 750ml champagne wine bottle just to instantly show people, hang on a minute, is that a beer or is that a wine? Is it a sparkling wine? What's going on? And with uh, Forest for the Trees, we really want to continue to blur those lines between uh, beer and wine. So it's a fantastic question, and uh, I reckon there's a little something in it for you a bit later. What a great question. <laughs> Uh, which, which, which one is these barons over there? Well done. <laughs> <laughs> Love the fact that these two are sitting right up in front. Eh? Oh, hang on. Oh, sorry, was that question for you? <laughs> uh, hey, uh, Richard, you've got a, a goza here today, is that right? What is, yep. what is that? Yeah, so goza is an interesting style. It was um, started over in uh, eastern Germany um, on the River Goes. Um, River Goes is very minerally, minerally rich, um, very salty. And so the, the brewers there created a, a, a wheat beer style that was quite salty. They also um, used some lacti lactobacillus to sour that beer and felt that the, the salt and the sour worked well together. Um, we've done our own interpretation of it. You might have heard that a lot of breweries around, the, um, around Australia, certainly, and also around the world, make what's called kettle sours, where they uh, basically um, go through the process of making a normal beer, but... Um, leave it in the kettle by, and then inoculating it with uh, lactobacillus. Which is basically um, a yoghurt or yoghurt culture. So there are brewers that use Yakult, for example. Well, there's are brewers that just chuck in kilos of yoghurt as well, yeah. which um, is, can be quite successful. Um, the other way you do it is you can actually use the natural um, lactobacillus that's on the grain. So we like to, to do our normal mash and then we actually send the beer straight to the fermenter without boiling it and use the, the natural lactobacillus that's actually on the grain. Um, we leave it in the fermenter for a couple of days and the, get the, um, allow the acid to build up, and then we go through the normal brewing process from there. So we send it back to the kettle, boil it up, add our hops, and do a normal fermentation from there. And it, it gives you a different type of acid. It gives you a really clean, sort of uh, really crisp, refreshing sort of acid. And uh, so yeah, come past the stall and try a gozer today. Oh, question down the back there. You do actually, you do get some, um, there, you definitely get a little bit of pediococcus happening as well, um, which um, because we're going through uh, basically a 48 hour lacto, um, uh, I guess, growth, and then we're sending it back to the kettle, we don't notice a lot of that um, character in the, in the actual beer, but um, if we weren't to uh, boil that beer again, yes, uh, we probably have all sorts of things going on. Uh, Brad, you're uh, showing off your bottle of Saison. Uh, can you... Again? 
<laughs> Can you kind of explain the difference between uh, a Saison and, and what people... Was, well, how Saison fits into this whole world of wild and, and sour beers? Yeah, certainly. I mean, Saison, re- I mean, you know, the myths of Saison really date back, you know, three, four, five hundred years uh, when farmers in Belgium and France uh, were trying to get their farm hands to actually come and do some work in their, on their farms and they were feeding them, or feeding them, but also giving them the local water and the water was making them sick, you know. I suppose back in the day it would have been Guardia or something like that. But at the end of the day, the farmers are going, hang on a minute, we actually need to do something about this. We're trying to get all this work done on the farm and uh, we, um, we're just making our farm hands uh, a little bit sick. So they worked out that, hang on, this brewing thing's all about boiling water, so maybe we could boil the water, brew some beer and uh, present a beer in the middle of the day. So traditionally it was, you know, three, four, maybe four and a bit percent alcohol. They knew that they weren't uh, brewers, so they would borrow some grain from the local, you know, the local farm that might have had some barley or some oats or wheat or whatever he could possibly get his hands on. Uh, remembering that they're not uh, brewers, they had no idea about yeast. Now, harping on, you know, yeast and yeast cultures, they literally had, uh, well, the myth goes, I wasn't around, but uh, the myths go that, you know, open fermenters, the yeast and the bacterias would fall, you know, from the shed uh, roofs, uh, ferment the beers, but they, I harp that they're not brewers, and they go, wow, what can we actually do to make this beer, you know, interesting? So they would rock along to the kitchen, open up the spice cupboard and grab a bit of this and a bit of that and a bit of that. And they would actually throw these spices, grind up the spices and throw them into the beer in, an, in a mere attempt to actually produce something that their farm hands could actually enjoy, you know, with their meals sort of through lunch. But getting them back to work was a pretty important thing. So making sure that it was 3 or 4%, I don't know how they actually monitored and managed that back then, but you know, maybe there was the odd batch where no one went back to work. But there's a really nice uh, you know, little segue now into uh, with what's going on with yeast. With, with, um, with this particular beer, we experimented with a few different yeasts. Uh, in this batch, we actually used three different yeasts. So we're already sort of mixing yeast up. We used a Belgian, uh, the Belgian Saison yeast, the French Saison yeast, and then a farmyard uh, yeast, which we actually had in. We propagated up in a small batch and then uh, threw all three yeasts all at once into, into the fermenter uh, you know, to get uh, this beer. We've actually scaled that back. We're actually now only using the, the Belgian and the French Saison uh, yeast. Um, and uh, people ask, well, why are you using this French stuff? It's really interesting back in that history. I mean, the, again, the myths go, you know, on the Belgian side, they made the Saison. On the French side, they made Beer de Garde. Essentially the same sort of uh, beer. Uh, and again, the myths go that, you know, the French didn't want to use their wine yeast. They crossed the fence and came up to Belgium and said, hey, can I borrow some of that yeast? And it's a little bit different, you know, I mean, the, the beer de garde is a little bit darker and a little, or traditionally a little bit more alcoholic. Maybe that's a French thing, I'm not sure. But uh, no, it's been great fun uh, putting this beer together. Uh, only been really available for the last month, so make sure you go and have a crack at all the great beers out there. Um, you mentioned they, they let the uh, bacteria kind of settle on the beer in an open fermenter. And Will, you mentioned a word before that a lot of people might not be familiar with, uh, and it's a cool ship. Uh, can you explain what that is? Uh, firstly, does anyone know what spontaneous beer is? No, alright again. Um, so essentially the way that we're producing spontaneous beers or, the, or, or spontaneous beers are 
we go through the normal process um, or slightly different process um, brewing a beer. Uh, we get to, we boil, we mash in, we boil the beer, we run it to fermenter, but instead of running it through a heat exchanger and chilling it down and then pitching a commercial uh, yeast onto it, what we do is we put it into a, a large shallow vessel uh, and in our case, we have it in an isolated room at the brewery. Uh, we have it hooked up to an external fan and over the course of the, the evening and overnight, and we normally do spontaneous uh, beers when the temperature drops below four degrees, so we knock, knock out a lot of the... The, uh, the native bacteria, um, or the unfavourable bacteria that we're after. And what happens over the course of the night, that fan drawing in ambient air lands on the beer, all of wild yeast bacteria um, that will actually inoculate with the beer uh, and enact upon it over the course of time. So that will occur overnight. The natural chilling process will occur. The next morning we'll come in and we'll backfill barrels with that beer straight into that, and then we, uh, then we go through a, um, a time... Um, pour process, um, where we wait and we essentially see what occurs. Um, what we found for us goes through about six months of smelling and tasting like Rosella tomato sauce, um, which is essentially bacteria enacting upon it. At about six to nine months, uh, the yeast start to, the wild yeast um, start to kick into it, and that's where we start to really get some flavour generation. Um, depending on what barrels, we try to use a lot of neutral um, oak, uh, ex-wine barrels, so that we're, we're really showcasing the the yeast and bacteria flavours in it. And then we're getting to the point um, where we have in bottle at the moment and it will, we're just waiting for it to condition. Um, so sometime next year we'll actually release our first spontaneous uh, beer that, um, that is a blend of two and three, uh, yeah, blend of two and three years spontaneous and then we'll go further on from there. So we've got a, we've got a cellar full of it that um, yeah, we're ticking through and, and just trying to blend and, and work out what's going on. All this talk of bacteria and uh, tasting like tomato sauce for, for months, how do you know, and I guess this is for all of you, how do you know if it's going to be good or bad at any point? And when do you decide, oh, I need to throw it out? That's what makes us good. <laughs> Anyone else want to add to that? Richard, how do you know? Oh, just, just going back to what I said earlier, it's all about the fascination of, and the commitment when you're making wild and sour beers. And it's, it's, you know, it's not like making a normal pale ale. You've really got to be committed and and be prepared to have some losses um, along the way as well. And I think um, the more you do it, the better you get and the less losses you have. But uh, you, still never, you still never get to the, the other side of the bridge where you'll be 100% right all the time. With... Uh, oh, I'll go for your question first. Uh, yeah. que sorry, the question was, uh, are you using fresh fruit in your beers? Yeah, so we, we made a conscious decision a couple of years ago with a lot of these wild and sour beers that we're doing. In Tassie, we got access to a terrific array of fruits, um, primary ingredients and stuff. So it, was, it would, would have been remiss of us not to access um, some of the fruits that we, that we can get our hands of. I mean, we have um, a beer, um, a green gauge. I'm not sure if anyone in the room knows what a green gauge is. It's essentially a French plum. It's only referred to as green gauges in Tassie, I'm pretty sure. Um, and we did that, and that came from a tree uh, next door to where I live with a 90-year-old female neighbour who couldn't pick them, so I said, oh, look, I'll pick them for you, I'll give you a bucket and we'll keep the rest and we'll make a beer out of it. Um, now I'm to the process where I'm bringing home half a dozen bottles of beer every couple of weeks to give to her because she enjoys it that much. So, yeah, I mean, fruits are development on that whole the barrel ageing and um, wild beers and stuff that adds, an, adds another level of complexity. Um, and how you're adding to it, what you're using, how long it's sitting on fruit for. 
Um, and then again, the same principles exist whereby um, sometimes it can go bad and, and there's no point trying to, to um, do anything with it if it's not right. So fortunately, fortunately it hasn't happened too often for us. Hey, uh, Richard, you mentioned this is a lot different to making pale ale. Why would you make these beers when you can just make pale ale and probably make a lot more money off it? <laughs> yeah, true. Um, I think, you know, harping on what Brad said, blurring the lines between beer and wine, I think, you know, people trying to, trying to get people to understand that the, the flavour spectrum of beer is far superior to wine and trying to showcase all those flavours that we've got to play with, um, that the winemakers don't really have all that many different, um, you know, flavours to, to play with. So I think um, this is, the, the process that these beers go through is there are a lot of similarities when, when you're making wine. So certainly with the, the, the acid or the, you know, the critical parts of making good sour beer is to get that acid right. And I think that's obviously a big component of making really good wine. Um, so I think trying to get people moving towards beer from wine um, and also people who are, are drinking the pale ale and the lager, getting them to start thinking about all the different flavours that, um, that beer can put forward and, and getting, trying to get people to try, try different beers. Any other questions out there? Oh. Sorry, what was that? Four degrees. Four, four degrees we find that... Yeah. <laughs> well, that's another question. Uh, I know that in Belgium, uh, a lot of breweries use a similar process uh, where they are doing it overnight, uh, but they're worried about global warming because the, the change of a couple of degrees, uh, I understand it means different bacteria. Is that accurate? Yeah. What, again, we're not doing anything new. We're just we're borrowing techniques that have occurred for hundreds of years, and what the, what the Belgians have found is that at around that four degrees or something, um, the, a lot of the unfavourable yeasts and bacteria... Uh, end up not being within the air. Now that can that can change depending on wind currents, where the where things have come from. I mean, we take a, every time we do a spontaneous, we take a 48-hour um, weather window photo of what's occurred with regards to winds, temperatures, and stuff at the brewery. So that then we can look back on it in, in years to come and go, geez, there was a northwesterly at at 30 odd k um, that had come all the way over from South Australia or something. It looks as though there's another system like that and we've got a really good result. Let's try and do that again. Um, at that four degrees, it knocks out a lot of those unfavourables so that over the course of time, we're getting something that's far more reflective. Of We're almost trying to manage it and control it um, as best we can. Yeah, I think if you look around... Sorry, mate. <laughs> I think if you look around the world and um, at all the good, good areas that make good sour beer, they all have massive temperature fluctuations. So they generally start their process, like Will was saying, it in winter at um, really low temperature and then they really want that summer um, heat to help, um, you know, get things moving along a little bit quicker. Um, which I guess poses a point for Brad. I'm not sure how he's going to mimic um, the lower temperatures up uh, down in Byron, but uh, sure he'll figure it out. Technology, mate. <laughs> but no, just to harp on a little bit, I mean, probably one of the most iconic... Uh, one of the most iconic uh, sour breweries, as Rich uh, mentioned before, Cantillon. Cantillon only brews uh, seven or eight months of the year because there's a whole period through the year where they just simply can't brew and they just don't bother brewing. There's a lot of work going on in the brewery because they've worked with the, the worts, they've fermented, and then there's a whole lot of barrel work that they need to do. We're lucky enough to spend quite a bit of time over the last four or five, six years with Jean in Cantillon, and it's fascinating to actually talk to someone like that uh, about why they do what they do and how they do it. 
And I was just going to say as well, on the back of that, I mean, it's such a small industry, and there's so many people doing this around the world, uh, and the doors of nearly all of these breweries are always open. So if we get a little stuck here or there, you know, we're all talking together. We might be able to go and talk to someone, you know, in the US or, you know, in Belgium. Uh, I was lucky enough to spend quite a bit of time with Rudy in uh, Rodenbach, uh, probably an iconic, uh, the most iconic Flanders Red brewery in the world. Uh, funny with the boys standing up the back. We actually brewed our first Flanders Red uh, this week. Uh, down in uh, down in the northern rivers, uh, we look forward to actually watching that develop. Uh, we've we've actually propagated that with what we call the Rousselaire yeast. Rodenbach is in a town called Rousselaire, and the yeast from uh, Rodenbach has been propagated to mimic uh, what Rodenbach are using. And it, for us as a brewery, there's quite a few people in the brewery and it's been, it will be fascinating for all of us to sit back and go, right, we've got the worts, we're fermenting, now let's let these uh, you know, wild bugs, wild bacteria, wild yeasts that we've purposefully added into, these, uh, into this beer, then we'll put that uh, beer in a week or so into some pretty cool barrels and just let, let the beer and let the little bugs uh, do their thing. We'll actually control the temperature. Uh, we're actually going to be using uh, some refrigerated uh, containers. Let's hope they don't switch off again. <laughs> but uh, we're going to hold, Rodenbach hold their, uh, hold their barrel room at about 15 to 16 degrees C's, but they hold it at about 90, 95% humidity as well. So, you know, we probably won't be able to do that exactly. But again, you know, back to what I was saying, that there's so much information out there and there's so many people that actually want to help everyone uh, you know, progress this whole sort of new world of, or new old world of uh, brewing beer. Uh, before we wrap up, we're about to run out of time. Does anyone have any more questions? Uh, I'm sure these guys will be around pouring beers and chatting, so if you have any questions, uh, I know that they would love to tell you all about it. Um, where can people find your, your beers today? Where are you, where are you located, Brad? Uh, we're straight back behind here, uh, in amongst uh, you know a whole range of great beers. Uh, we've got Will uh, and the Van Diemen boys uh, sort of out and around at the back over here as well, and Rich has got pole position right at the front door. <laughs> Hello, hello everyone. Uh, welcome to the, the second of the panels for today's Invitational. A uh, big shout out for Stone and Wood for putting on such a great event. So nice out there wandering around and chatting to brewers. Uh, unfortunately, we've got uh, a brewer and a distiller with us today who know a ton about beer and a ton about gin and Australian flavours, which is going to be the, uh, the topic we're talking about. Uh, I've got Craig from Stone and Wood. Craig, how's it going? Good, thank you. How are you? Good, thanks. What's your job at Stone and Wood? Uh, production team leader, so just sort of running day-to-day uh, -day operations in the brewery and overseeing, you know, people and uh, quality issues throughout the day. Cool. And Eddie from Brookies. Uh, it's Cape Byron Distillery, isn't it? Yeah, we try to be as confusing as possible. So <laughs> Our distillery is called Cape Byron Distillery, uh, and we produce our Brookies gin out of there. So, uh, yeah, we'll probably confuse people with more brand names later on down the track. All right, good. I look forward to it. Um, so we're going to talk about Australian flavours, and one of the things that um, I really admire about Stone & Wood I don't work for Stone Wood, by the way. They've, they've invited me along to, to do this. I'm genuine when I say I admire it. They, they make a beer called the Original Pacific Ale, and it really showcases Australian hops. Uh, and it's kind of led to a lot of imitators. Um, 
So, Craig, can you tell us about Pacific Ale and, I guess, what that flavour is that it has and why, what makes it uniquely Australian? Yeah, well, I guess the, uh, the big thing about Pacific Ale, as anyone knows, the beer is the Galaxy Hop variety that we use, grown down in Tasmania. It, uh, I think it was first released, I think they first came up with the breed, Sam and I were just looking into it a bit more this morning, they first came up with the breed itself back in 1994, but it got shelved for a while because they didn't think there was any market for it, but with the emergence of the craft beer scene uh, and people actually wanting to get some flavour into their beer and uh, particularly, you know, wanting to see what we can get out of Australian grown hops, they, uh, they put the breed back into rotation and it sort of found its life, I think, about 2008. Along when uh, really the same time that Stone and Wood started. So the, the hop itself, Galaxy, and then Stone and Wood have almost grown hand in hand together, uh, along with Hop Products Australia, who actually, you know, grow the, the, grow the hop itself. But it's a, it's a beautiful plant, a really high alpha acid and a really high oil content, a lot of essential oils in it. What, what, what's an alpha acid? Uh, it hovers around the 16 to 17 mark. Oh, what is it though? Oh, what is it? Sorry, it, uh, it's uh, alpha acids is what gives beer its bitterness. So. When you actually boil a hop plant, those alpha acids are converted into isomerized alpha acids, and that's what actually gives you your beer your bitterness, and that bitterness, you know, depending on what beer you're making, you use to just counteract the other sweet flavours in the beer coming from primarily the malt and residual sugars from the malt. So um, a, lot of a, a lot of Australian breweries are using a lot of American hops, um, a lot of New Zealand hops. What makes, say, hops like Galaxy and other Australian hops stand out? Uh, look, the way I always look at it is it's uh, similar to wine where people refer to this terroir where certain grape varieties grow well in certain areas and certain areas start to become known for their, their Shiraz or their Pinots or whatever it is and it's no different with hops. So the hops grown in an American climate will produce these sort of citrus pine notes which are really suited to the American style beers. In Australian climates and particularly down in Tasmania, uh, you've got this really cool climate, really wet climate, and it produces these hops that have this real stone fruit character, uh, passion fruits and pineapples as well. So they start to get their own identity, particularly on how you use them. Some of the biotransformation that happens during fermentation really yields that pineapple and mango and passion fruit flavours. So they start to almost become their own brand of hops in a way. Yep. Okay, we've had some uh, pretty big words thrown around, biotransformation. Uh, um, Anyone have any questions or, like, just put your hand up uh, if you're not sure or you want anything clarified? No? Cool. All right, everyone knows what... Thank God. <laughs> just out of curiosity, you're talking about, like, hops being grown in cooler climates. Is anybody growing hops in, like, areas like Stanthorpe and Thurston's Um So the question's about uh, growing hops in, in warmer climates. Uh, I don't actually know. Oh, well, well, I don't know where Stanthorpe is. I'm from Melbourne. <laughs> First of all, I don't know where that is. But look, where is it? Your hops need a lot of... Sorry. Inland, okay. Yeah. Hops need a lot of water. Uh, they're a really water-heavy crop. Um, and they also need the right sort of temperature. They're really subjective to uh, mildew and, and other sort of moulds and stuff. So if you've got a really warm climate and a really wet climate, uh, so a really humid sort of this sort of area, uh, the leaves themselves and everything can actually get mould and mildew disease and they'll actually, they won't fruit. Yeah, so you need that, that colder climate to keep all that sort of mould and bacteria at bay. Yeah. Um, Eddie, I was at Cape Byron Distillery earlier this year and it's probably one of my favourite distillery experiences because we got out into the rainforest and uh, picked leaves and picked fruit and got to smell things, uh, which are, are so fascinating and, and they're all native ingredients or native uh, herbs. Can you tell us about I guess, what you're doing there? 
Yeah, um, yeah. so our distillery lives in the middle of our family's farm. Uh, Brook Farm is the name of our farm. Um, so my folks moved there 30-odd years ago and had this crazy idea. It was a rundown dairy farm to plant macadamias, but we say they got the rainforest bug pretty hard. So uh, they fell in love with rain or regenerating the rainforest. Um, and our area, we call it Northern Rivers. You'll hear that and you'll see it on, obviously, Stonewood Beers. That's kind of the greater area we're a part of. Uh, and it's very much a subtropical climate. So there's huge amounts of different, I suppose, native flavours that are native to that rainforest region of Australia. So, um, yeah, so my family, we've been regenerating rainforests. And a couple of years ago, um, yeah, we decided to... Um, we built a distillery. Um, in particular, I was lucky enough, one of our business partners were a family business, but also a guy by the name of Jim McEwen. If anyone's had Brook Laddie whiskey or Bowmore whiskey, he was kind of the master, or he's a master distiller there for a while. Um, but yeah, for us, I get really excited about using and showcasing native flavours. You know, you know, you just walk off the veranda at the distillery into the rainforest, you can taste aniseed myrtle. Uh, then you think of all these other flavours. Cinnamon, we got cinnamon myrtle. Um, just a quick hands up. Has anyone here had a finger lime before? Yeah? Yeah, cool. So it's pretty, pretty good. Like, you go back five years, a lot of people hadn't even tried native flavours and this availability, but I suppose knowledge about native flavours is getting a lot more prevalent. Um, and, uh, yeah, there's a world, you know, um, there's a girl or a lady by the name of Cheryl. We call her Crazy Cheryl. I hope she's not here, but uh, she grows the best damn finger limes in Northern Rivers. Um, there's actually 80 known varieties of finger limes in Northern Rivers. So it just kind of gives you an idea of the depth of flavour that's available. You know, we just came out of native raspberry harvest, um, you know, mint, we've got river mint. I think you guys use that in a gatherer. Um, you know, so there's just a whole, I suppose, such depth of flavour, and that's what we do. So we distill uh, 26 of our botanicals, or 18 of those 26 are native, uh, not just native to Australia, they're native to our pocket of, uh, of the world, northern rivers, and the majority we just get straight from our rainforest. It's interesting seeing native ingredients, and you touched on that with um, finger limes five years ago, probably no one in this room, or maybe a very few people. Um, I'm seeing it a lot more in restaurants, uh, you're seeing it more on TV, people are sort of embracing native ingredients as a point of difference rather than, I guess, copying overseas trends. What do you think is driving that? Um, well, it's, it, it's sort of, you, you, you can't help but think it's sort of common sense that we should be, you know, enjoying and exploring these flavours. You go around, around the world, every, anywhere, and you see what is the, you know, the food culture of that nation or whatever comes back to what's native and local to their environment now in australia we're only <clears throat> we've got the most incredible amount of native flavors yet we just haven't been educated or we haven't embraced them um, we've got this incredible native food movement about 30 years ago a lot of farmers started to uh, crop native foods you know in northern rivers we've got huge or pretty strong davidson plum um, you know, um, uh, orchards and f different varieties of finger limes growing. But I think now in particular, we're starting to get excited about them. We're starting to learn about those flavours, you know, and um, it's through different products, you know, yes, from the gin, but, um, you know, it was a point of difference on a dish to do, you know, oysters with finger lime or, you know, with strawberry gum or something like that is pretty cool. And I think people are starting to, uh, to embrace it as well. Yeah. Yeah. 
Uh, the question was around overseas markets responding to native flavours. How do it? There's definitely uh, a big push for Australian hops over in the US at the moment, you know. It's sort of like touched on earlier about their hops there getting massive citrus and pine notes and uh, the Australian hops just sort of allowing them to add further complexity to their own beers by bringing in that stone fruit character. Uh, real big push for it, man. It's really popular. Yeah. I was chatting to a US brewer recently, um, Oscar Blues, who are a huge, huge brewery in the US, and they had a brewer in a hop farm in Tassie, just literally standing there picking hops off, ringing the head brewer back in uh, America, saying, hey, this tastes like this, maybe we could use it. And then based on that, they designed a whole new beer, and it's kind of their flagship beer. So the Americans are, uh, I don't know, coming in and poaching our, our hops. Um, Loving it. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it's great to see, I guess, there that, as you said, on an uh, international level. Um, how does beer fit into native ingredients in terms of, I guess, the food movement, um, you know, beer's kind of rising after wine, after food. How do you see Stone Wood fitting into that? Yeah, look, it's uh, just sort of touching on what uh, Ed was just saying there. Uh, you know, Australia is such a young country and it's still finding its way in terms of uh, developing its own identity in terms of those sort of native ingredients and food. And beer's just another one of those things. It's, uh, it's a little bit slower to get off the mark than, uh, than wine. Uh, you know, and I guess even further than that, spirits as well is just starting to emerge as an actual craft movement in Australia. So we're a little bit behind the ball uh, compared to things like wine. Um, you know, I think there was a real big push for uh, the wine movement, and particularly in uh, Western Australia, where I'm from originally. Uh, you know, a lot of money invested in the wine industry almost as a tourism thing. Uh, bring people into the country to check out these wine regions. And so it really helped that industry grow and boom. Uh, whereas beer's just sort of coming in behind that now and uh, just sort of starting to develop its own identity. And that takes time, you know. It's uh, educating the masses that beer's not just this uh, lager that you uh, smash out of a tin after leaving the factory, you know. It's, uh, there's an image thing associated with it which takes time to change. Uh, and Australia's got this very strong culture of, 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 of masculinity and, and, and within that, that beer's got to be bitter and and you know strong and all these sorts of things and it's about changing the perception of what beer actually is and it it takes a little bit of time i think brad and rich mentioned earlier on the last panel it's uh, blurring the line between wine and beer and actually telling letting people know about how complex these flavors and beers can actually become uh, and how well they pair with food when you have a decent beer list on your, your on your restaurant menu so many times you go into a restaurant and you've got this beautiful menu, you've got a beautiful wine list, and then you just got this beer list tacked on the end of imported Peroni and, and Corona, and it's, it's just such a shame. And not sort of bagging those beers out, they have their place in the world, but just the, the, there's still a lot of room there for people to put that extra thought and effort into how the beer will pair with the food and, and how they can actually build a beer list, you know, along with that wine list. What do you um, say the Pacific Ale, the flagship Stonerwood beer... What do you think goes well with that food-wise? Oh, look, it's a nice, delicate-flavoured beer, you know, given it's, it's sort of got this sort of relatively bold for the, at the time, these passion fruit flavours. Uh, but anything quite light, you know, fish and, and uh, white meat's really good for, uh, sashimi, all that sort of thing. They sell it at a new restaurant down in, in uh, Byron called Bang Bang and paired really well with some sashimi the other night. It's really nice, some Mexican food. Living in Australia uh, near the coast fresh seafood and, and fresh Australian hot beer sounds pretty good to me. Fresh, fresh back ale, beautiful. Uh, Eddie, tell me about gin and, and pairing it with food, particularly the native ingredients you're using. How does that work? 
Uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty versatile, I suppose. Um, gin, we're pretty laxed with our rules. Um, you know, we've got one rule to be a gin, which is you know you have to use juma, juniper, and it's got to be prominent in that flavour. So that's kind of the only that's you know that's our rule book, which is pretty pretty expansive. So um, you can do different styles. So our dry, our Brookies dry gin, you know, you can do that with a tonic or with different cocktails. So you can play around. Again, it's a bit lighter in style. So again, um, you know, we had uh, uh, as a as a lady called Shark Oysters in Northern Rivers. Um, she actually uses the gin and cures salmon in there. Um, she was using the gin and smoking oysters and and serving that on top. So you kind of getting that sort of. I'm I'm salivating already just thinking. Um, but uh, yeah, it really is quite versatile. And then. Um, you know, we, then you take another one of our styles. We did a, 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 a take on a slow gin, a version of an English slow gin, but using uh, 100% native. Yeah, um, uh, the native Davidson plum. So it comes from our rainforest region of northern rivers. And um, so with that, again, it's that little bit more sweetness. And you can almost use that as a sort of pairing with a cheese platter, or you can use that in different cocktails. And uh, yeah, just sort of quite versatile, I'd say. Davidson plums. Uh I'd never heard of them until I visited the, the distillery and then I feel like everyone started putting them into beer and onto yeah. to dishes and restaurants. What are they? Uh, they're a pretty stunning fruit. Hands up here. Has anyone actually tried a, a, a Davidson plum here? Cool. Hey. Brad, <laughs> Brad excluded. <laughs> He's out of view. So, and this is kind of, this is the world where I get excited about that. You know, in a, in a year's time, when I ask that same question, more people have their hand up. It's that learning about native foods. So the the Davidson plum is a native rainforest plum, native to the rainforest of northern rivers. The DNA of that tree comes from Mullumbimby, just to give you an idea. Um, and this tree is something, it's quite strange. It looks like a, a, a tree out of a Dr. Seuss novel. So it's quite very tall, uh, sort of thin, thin. Um, uh, what's the word, trunk on it. Uh, and on the top, you've got this sort of like top hat of leaves, but all the plums, the fruit grow directly off the stem uh, of the, uh, off, off the trunk of the tree. Um, and they're an incredible fruit. They're very tart, quite sour, but, you know, quite tannic as well. Really good for making jams. That's how I grew up, you know, making jam. You think about with sauces, with red meats. Um, great to use that jam in cocktails. Um, but it's that real sour um, depth of flavour. So you think about, you know, uh, uh, in the world of beer now, you know, how prevalent sours are and you're looking for some of those flavour profiles. In terms of native Aussie flavours, we've got lots of sour and we've got lots of bitter. Um, so it kind of works quite well, you know, so. Everything you need. Where, uh, where do you see, Craig, uh, Australian hops are... We talked about HPA, which for people that don't know are um, a hop breeding thing in Australia. They, they put a lot of emphasis on creating new hops. And I think they, they do thousands of test varieties and then just work out until they get a good one. And when they got Galaxy, I think that's probably made their company and um, put Australian hops on the map, I think. Absolutely. On a global stage, absolutely. I mean, there, there's a lot of good hops out there that are Australian-grown. Um, there's, there's more than just Galaxy. I guess Galaxy's just... Uh, a very famous one, you know, uh, which, you know, Stone and Wood uh, is obviously a good example of uh, how, uh, you know, one beer can actually bring a hop to, to the forefront of the industry, you know. Uh, but look, there's, there's so many other products and other, and other hop growers in Australia too that, that are producing good hops and a multitude of flavours. So where do you see Australian hops heading in the next, say, five years? What do you know? Trying to keep up with demand. Yeah. <laughs> 
You know, it, uh, like I was saying before, hops uh, require quite a specific growing environment, particularly if you want to replicate those flavours over and over and over again each harvest. So you're sort of limited to a certain pocket of the world. Um, so I imagine a lot of HBA's futures looking at uh, sourcing more land and, and, and growing more of the same varieties, but experimenting with others. I think they've actually just installed a brewery down there over the last couple of years, um, not for a commercial size or anything like that, but they just want to see how their hops perform uh, on, a, on a practical level. You know, it's one thing to cut it open and throw it through the lab and say there's X amount of this essential oil and X amount of that one, but to actually work out how to use that in the brewery is a completely different thing. And, whether or not you're boiling those essential oils or whether or not they're adding, uh, like I mentioned earlier, like during fermentation as there's yeast transforming all these compounds in the, in the beer, it's changing all those essential oils into other flavours and it's tr they're just trying to work out the best way uh, to get the most out of the hops. And, uh, you know, I guess in a way they want to know what's practical to do in the brewery too and what's user-friendly and one certain hop might look bad on paper but when you throw it in the fermenter in it, ferments away for a couple of days and it just becomes amazing. Uh, you mentioned transformation and biotransformation. Um, it's one of the most interesting things to be happening in the world of beer, I, I think, recently. Um, what is it? Uh, yeah, look, on a, on a chemical level, it's, you know, very, very complex, but basically, you know, as the, if there's active fermentation going on, your yeast is constantly taking... Uh, compounds out of the wort and fermenting them, either turning them into alcohol or carbon dioxide, but there's also other bright byproducts of that, which are uh, flavours and esters, uh, and they all sort of have these different fruity complexes, very different to what they had as the raw compound itself prior to going through the yeast cell and being transformed into a different compound. Uh, so what you have, particularly with hops, and what's becoming very popular, you see lately, these New England IPAs, uh, hazy IPAs, and there's one at the fixation stand uh, today. I'm sure there's probably a couple around the place, to be honest. Uh, you're talking about really taking advantage of that process, and it's sort of something, I guess, we've only really learned over the last few years, you know? It's something we've only become aware of, I guess, you know, it's been happening this whole time, but all of a sudden now we're just like, oh, hang on a minute, this is actually, we can actually scientifically work out what's going on here. And people have really gotten a hold of it and really taken advantage of it. And you get some beers out there that are just loaded up with hops all throughout fermentation. It's my understanding that Australian hops in particular perform really well in that process? Uh, look, all, all hops will under, you know, undergo changes during fermentation. It, it all depends on what you're trying to get out of it. Some American hops are really good for it, Citra. Mosaic hops grown out of America have this uh, chemical in it, essential oil in it called geraniol and uh, after that goes through biotransformation bio it creates this beautiful citrus flavour um, which is absolutely delicious. So, I mean, the American hops have it too. I guess it's more of a new world hop thing. Any sort of hops grown these days are no longer focused on just trying to get the highest amount of alpha acids, what I was talking about, the bitterness earlier. You know, back in the day, it was all about economics and we grow hops to maximise those alpha acids so that the brewer itself can use less of them. Uh, so it was an economical thing. But uh, these days, they're grown for flavour and, uh, and more aroma compounds. And so it's a completely different process and trying to maximise that for the farmer and, and beers these days really reflecting that. I love that we've learned what biotransformation is. Uh, hopefully you, you've learned that too. Um, Eddie, where do you see, I guess, native ingredients and in, in spirits going um, in terms of cocktails and gin and, and even, um, you know, whiskey? We're seeing local whiskies now. How does that all look in the next few years? Yeah, I think, I think that native food side is going to be at the forefront of it. And that's, you know, you look about 
right, you know, selling with Inside Australia, but our spirits and you know all of our different products, it's going to put us in the map on the map. You know, how attractive is that to overseas markets to buy something that is purely native and unique? You can't get those flavors anywhere else in the world. And you look at that from the outside in, and then when you're inside, you're like, why don't we see it that way? And um, but yeah, but for for us, our landscape, the environment that we have, you know. To put it in perspective, uh, the spirit industry is in its such an early, early stage. Um, it's kind of where you know I kind of see the spirit industry is now, where it was, you know, when when Stone and Wood the guys first started. You know, we're we're at least ten years behind. You know, brands like Four Pillars, they're only six years or seven years old. Prior to them spirits, premium spirits in Australia, the production of them just didn't exist. Um, you know, so we were obviously making spirits for that sort of craft element and sort of playing on those flavours. So all of a sudden now around Australia, even locally here to Brisbane, but you travel around, you've got all these different distilleries that are popping up and in the world of gin, they're using and hopefully using flavours that are purely unique to their region. So you should get a little snapshot all around Australia of those different flavours. But... Um, yeah, it's, it's, there's some exciting stuff coming up. Um, and in particular, you know, you take Australian whiskey. That's um, our next venture we're heading into, just for, just for a giggle, keep us busy. Um, but you take whiskey, you, you age a barrel of whiskey in Scotland, you think about the temperature. It's that climate where it breathes in and out of the barrel um, at a very low rate in Scotland. Now, if you do that same maturation period in Australia, we get quite rapid maturation. So bigger wood contact as well, it's breathing in and out of that barrel, working harder. So the environment itself shapes a lot of that, that spirit. But um, yeah, for, for us, where we're going, it's, it's all around the native flavours. We're um, yeah, just uh, in two weeks, two weeks, it was meant to be next week, we pushed it back, we're launching a uh, uh, roasted macadamia and wattle seed liqueur, um, which will be quite fun. Um, and again, that's purely showcasing some pretty epic flavours that we've got um, natively to, to our backyard. Can you say that was again, a roasted? Uh, it's a roasted macadamia and wattle seed. Um, All right. What is yeah. that going to taste like? Macadamias? Uh, yeah. For, yeah. Hopefully. Uh, yeah. Um, kind of like if you guys have any flavour memories of Frangelico in your mind, that sort of roasted nutty flavour, it's like that, but purely native to Australia, showcasing the maca or the macadamia. Um, so, yeah, so that'll be, um, that'll be a bit of fun, but I think... I think we're just, you know, consumers, all of us, we're getting more educated and, you know, we're intrigued and we're understanding and enjoying our native flavours and our identity of what our food and drink industry should be. So I think it's that, it's that two ways. It's, you know, the producers, we're pushing it out, but there's that demand as well. So, you know, um, you know it kind of works both ways to make, make, it, make it work. Does anyone have any questions at this point? Yo. What's the next big thing in Australian hops? Next big thing in Australian hops? Shit, that's a loaded, <laughs> loaded one, that one. <laughs> uh, look, I guess, uh, you know, I mean, hops are hops, you know, and I think uh, you, they, you, they're, they're a plant. There's only so much you can do with them. Um, you know, you, you, you want to talk about, like, genetic manipulation or, um, you know, crossbreeding to create a higher concentration of flavour. You know, I mean, there's definitely going to be some work in that, I reckon. You know, is can you add half the amount of hop and get the same amount of flavour? Um, you know, from a business side of thing and definitely from a consumer side of thing, buying less hops and or having to do yet less processing in the brewery to get the same amount of flavour, 
uh, would be definitely something I imagine they're looking at. But again, it's an agricultural product. You can't do too much to it or you might actually lose the original plant altogether. So uh, just trying to maintain those flavours, I guess, you know, and trying to find other hops that replicate other flavours. I mean, Galaxy is a good one, uh, you know, that has that real typical passion fruit stone fruit flavours. So there's other hops that uh, Australia grows that have really specific other flavours too. You know, you can get some mango and you almost get berry characters out of uh, the hop plant Enigma, uh, which is also grown down in Tassie. So I guess, you know, they'll just keep looking for other flavours. They might be able to find a hop plant that's really reminiscent of a different flavour altogether and that will become the next popular hop, you know. Sort of answer your question, I think. Question behind that? Yeah, no, definitely. Like we've actually got a native juniper um, here that grows uh, in a, in Australia. But when I say native juniper, the flavour of it is not re reminiscent to the juniper that we know. So there are definitely juniper-like flavour compounds that you can get from different other native flavours. Um, and there's a guy actually um, harvest restaurant in Northern Rivers. They've got a forager there, and this guy is, uh, you know, he he pretty much. Um, advance the native food industry. You know, he named strawberry gum, strawberry gum. He named cinnamon myrtle what it is. Uh, his name's Peter Hardwick. So I, I have some lengthy, crazy conversations with this guy. And, you know, you think about it, could you actually rebuild that flavour profile from other different, flav other different um, notes combined to get it? Um, that's, that's a long-term project for me to be able to actually replicate a gin that tastes like a gin, but purely native from, from, from our region and around Australia. Um, yeah, it's definitely possible, but, you know, what would it be called? For us, we couldn't call it gin, I'd, I'd imagine. So, uh, oh, we'll come up with something anyway. We'll, is we'll there make... actually a legality there that you can't call it gin, or is that a respect thing? Uh, it, it, yeah, it is actually legality. So it's a lot more, a lot more stringent, obviously, throughout Europe and the UK. But we took a lot of those. Just like whiskey, you know, for us has to be in Scotland. I believe it's three or four years in Australia, where minimum two years in a barrel. So it's kind of there's variations, but yeah, we have to use has to be to, the notes and flavours of juniper have to be present. Yeah. Yeah, like if, if I distilled everything, same, same batch of gin and I took out the, the juniper, I've just got flavoured vodka. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, you, you vodka. Um, um, so there's, you know, the fact that it's just got a, a name associated to it, there's so much flavour you can play on with that. So, yeah, I, I, I hope to see that that's going to be a bit of a trend of, of you know, flavoured vodkas, but vodka itself as a category, it's kind of... Yeah, we're sort of steering away from it. Fla flavoured vodka has so many connotations. Oh, it does, doesn't it? Everyone just cringes when I say flavoured vodka. I do too. There's a little bit inside of it, does. It is schoolies at the moment. Yeah, we got it. Yeah, it is. Yeah, um, but yeah. So there's. I think there's. Look, there can be some pretty exciting rebranding on that. Um, but hundred percent. You know, you, there's so many different native flavours we can showcase. Like. I uh, just found one not too long ago. Hasn't been done. It's called cumin eucalyptus. You've got notes of cumin coming from a eucalypt plant. Um, similar plant as like, you know, the, the, the strawberry gum. You know, it's got notes of strawberry. It's incredible. Um, so, yeah, there's, there is a world out there of native flavours that people really haven't even touched yet. Um, that's a really good point to stop. Um, if you have any more questions, I'm sure these guys will be around the floor to answer them. 
Uh, I should also mention there's a silent auction happening down the front uh, where you can bid on various things. One of them is a carton of beer from every brewery uh, that's attending. So if you bid savvy, you might get a pretty good deal. Um, I think there's a trip to Byron as well. There's a few different things. Um, and that's all going to the Ingrain Foundation, which is an awesome cause. Uh, my name is Luke. I, I do a podcast and website called Ale of a Time. Uh, you can tune in. Um, or don't. I don't, yeah. Please do. <laughs> um, thank you for Craig from Stonerwood and Eddie from, from Cape Byron. Cheers, guys. Thank you.